Hello and welcome to Brandcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan and I'll be your host for today. Today, we're joined by Dr. Owen O'Malley. Dr. O'Malley is an Associate Professor in Political Science at the School of Law and Government, DCU. He's the author of Contemporary Ireland, a university textbook on Irish politics, and he writes a regular column with the Irish Independent. Today, we talked Irish politics. The discussion ranged from the IRA and the Blue Shirts to the Progressive Democrats and John Bruton. Dr. O'Malley provides an explanation for why Ireland never went fascist or communist, and he shares his thoughts on the rise of Sinn Féin and their likely place in the next coalition. We talk about freedom of speech, his favourite political heaves, what he thinks about every day, and much more. Dr. O'Malley, thank you very much for coming on the Bramcast. No problem, happy to be here. Would you say that modern day Sinn Féin is more analogous to Cumann in the 1930s or Fianna Fáil in the 1930s? Well, it's not like Cumann Gael in a way. Uh, I think it probably is very like uh, Fianna Fáil and I suspect what we'll end up seeing when presumably Sinn Féin enter government, I assume after the next election, I think you will see something akin to what Fianna Fáil did. So Fianna Fáil in the 1930s disappointed uh, some a lot of its kind of more radical uh, supporters and members, uh, but then did do things that were probably didn't have a a major impact in the sense of being kind of politically important or at least were symbolically important. So introducing something like uh, Bunnacht in the Heron didn't actually alter the the nature of the state. It was more or less the, the same political system afterwards as it was before. But it did, it was symbolically important because obviously it introduced an Irish constitution that had been supported by Irish people. And so I suspect that Sinn Féin will be a bit like that. They won't have as many substantive kind of radical changes that, you know, people might hope for or, or think they're promised. But they will, Sinn Féin, I suspect, will feel the need to deliver something symbolically important. Uh, what that is, I'm, I'm not sure. But obviously they also, I mean, again, Cumannagail and Fianna Fáil in the 1920s and 30s both delivered housing and I suspect Sinn Féin will feel the need that, I mean, they will change whatever laws need to be changed uh, in order to get housing built. I think that'll be the kind of the one metric on which people will judge them. Um, and I suspect that they'll probably be able to do a bit better than the, the current and last few governments. The reason why I, I draw the comparison between Cumnoil and Sinn Féin is for the sole reason of the, the private armies that they're both associated with, Cumnoil being the blue shirts back then, and then, of course, Sinn Féin and the prisoner IRA. But is, is that just um, not a coincidence, but simply a, a parallel and nothing more? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd, I mean, the blue shirts, I mean, a lot of people kind of make a big hoo-ha about the blue shirts, but I mean, they weren't that much of a big deal. They kind of faded into into non-existence uh, fairly quickly when it became apparent that the new Fianna Fáil government was going to behave constitutionally and wasn't and didn't go out of its way to prevent uh, Fine Gael eventually uh, become from organising politically. So there were genuine fears at, in 1932. So, I mean, you could see why somebody would have set up things like something like the Blue Shirts. It was probably a bit unfortunate for them now that, you know, they 
wore shirts and they ended up using kind of what was probably fashionable in the, at the time in the early 1930s was kind of to copy what was going on in Europe. And so that kind of fascistic element was was difficult. I mean, the provisional IRA were, are probably a lot more pernicious, not probably, are definitely a lot more pernicious than, than the blue shirts everywhere, which was a kind of a dress, people, fellas dressing up really. Uh, whereas the provisional IRA were systematically killing, torturing people. And like, I mean, it's now, you know, they were doing things like, uh, or, or possibly still are, uh, protecting child abusers, things like that. I mean, as an organisation, it probably should have, you know, led Sinn Féin to being cancelled a while ago. But uh, the provisional IRA is a, a far more was has been a far more dangerous organisation physically and more damaging to the interests of the country than, let's say, Fine Gael's association with the blue shirts. So Fianna Fáil were behaving constitutionally. They seem to be fairly on the straight and narrow. Is that the primary reason why Ireland didn't swing to one of the political extremes that were fashionable in Europe at the time? And how did the influence of the Catholic Church influence that? It's hard to know about the church. I mean, the church wasn't that, didn't offer that much leadership. I mean, a lot of people kind of talk about the church as if it were a a domineering organization. But if you kind of think about, you know, where the church stood before 1916, for instance, you know, it, 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 the Catholic Church has a tendency, and I think in Ireland at least, has had a tendency to kind of shift with the way the political winds are blowing. And so when independence became uh, inevitable, then the Catholic Church shifted towards being more nationalist than it had been. It obviously had been, in, in effect, the church had been bought off at the in the early 19th century by the British. Uh, they you know, liberalized the, the laws to enable uh, enable things, the, the church to organize better. Uh, they also gifted the church land. They gifted the church, the school, allowed church control of schools and things like that. So the church was not, was never a kind of a radical organization. And it wasn't, but I'm not sure that it was holding people back that much. Obviously, you know, there was, the leadership of both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil were both, were all kind of, well, not all, but most were conservative Catholics. Uh, so they were obviously not inclined towards, you know, atheistic communism and things like that. Um, I mean, the other reasons why, you know, radical politics didn't happen might be because, you know, the land question had been more or less solved as well. So that meant there wasn't that kind of that drive that to uh, to re- towards radical politics, and then you know there was a little bit of industrialization in Dublin, but there were it, it's you didn't have a huge number of industrial workers, so you had a lot of small farmers who owned their own land, and so they were probably you know that was a lot the bulk of the economy was that, and these were people who owned their own land. And people who own things tend to be a little more conservative than people who don't. Returning to the present day, it seems that many issues to do with Northern Ireland have been solved, at least from what has come of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the violence that was rife and the troubles having precipitously fallen and so on. Why then do you think Sinn Féin is growing in popularity, given their association with the private army that is the IRA? Um, 
or is it in spite of that? Uh, yeah, I think it is in spite of that. I mean, I think the reason Sinn Féin is rising in popularity is because it's not in government. I don't think there is that big shift to Sinn Féin so much as uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael traditionally, I mean, if you look at voting patterns traditionally, you would see that Fianna Fáil is up, Fine Gael is down, Fianna Gael is up, Fianna Fáil is down, and one goes up when the other goes down, uh, and usually in response to being in government. And so, you know, when when Fianna Fáil had been in government for 16 years, uh, then you'd see Fine Gael would, would go up in popularity. That broke really in 2016 when Micheál Martin did a de- did the sub- confidence and supply deal with uh, Fine Gael. That kind of broke that arrangement uh, where one would where you know you you got sick of one of the parties you moved to the other, uh, and so because of that, you know, Labour had been tried and was kind of kicked out in in 2016. Uh, there were no other kind of big parties to go to. And so it probably made some sense that Sinn Féin picked up uh, some support in 2016. Now, it didn't uh, pick up that much uh, at the time. But then after 2016, when Micheál Martin did the confidence and supply, by 2020, if you didn't want, if you didn't want Fine Gael, voting Fianna Fáil wasn't the smart thing to do because, you know, they were the party that had just been effectively supporting that government and you could see that Sinn Féin cleverly in when used the kind of FFG thing uh, most of the campaigning that uh, Sinn Féin did in 2020 was to kind of argue that the you know these two parties they're the two historic parties that have always dominated the state if you want an alternative you vote for us you vote for Sinn Féin and so I suppose I mean I can't claim that I saw it coming uh, but like in retrospect, actually, there was one poll in in December 2019 that showed Sinn Féin to to be rising. But I, I mean, I think despite the economy doing it was doing pretty well. I mean, that the housing stuff still hadn't been solved. And Sinn Féin was talking about housing, 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 housing. And so maybe it, make, it made some sense that people moved to Sinn Féin. But I don't think it's because of the issue of Northern Ireland. Uh, I don't think, I mean, I, I think Sinn Féin, or it, it's the issue for Sinn Féin, for, at least for the Sinn Féin leadership, it's, it's the most important issue. And I think they're trying to probably mobilise their supporters to care more about Northern Ireland. And so that you can see that there's a, you know, a campaign of, I mean, information propaganda, use whatever phrase you want to kind of try and uh, mainstream the provos and make people kind of, you know, a lot of the you know, current debate is or that, that you'd hear from, from, from Sinn Féin would be that, oh, you know, Michael Collins was as violent as, you know, any, any, of, uh, any of the provisional IRA uh, members. And so they're trying to more or less mainstream and get, I suppose, a, a new generation of people to think of Bobby Sands in the way that my generation would have thought of Michael Collins, say. Do you think that by virtue of um, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, both in around 30%, Sinn Féin above 30% in the polls now, we're at risk of a balkanized political system going the way of Italy? Uh, yeah, I think it's a problem. I mean, I don't think Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael or Sinn Féin are, are necessarily the problem because they're 
parties that are willing to go into government. I think there is a problem with the number of independents. Uh, so, you know, and probably you'll see a rise, you might see a rise in the number of independents, which would be an historic high. Uh, because again, if you know, if you're conservative and you don't like the way Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have been governing in the last couple of years, you're not going to go to Sinn Féin or People Before Profit, but you'll end up going to, you'll vote for independence. And so you'll get more and more independence. A lot of the, especially the rural independents are, you know, they're pliable and they they can be bought. And once they're bought, they, they stay bought. They tend to be kind of fairly loyal to a deal that they sign. The, there's a, another problem, I suppose, in that you can see the Labour Party are scared of going into government because they realise that, you know, government hasn't been a happy hunting ground for them. But there, I think that's a mistake because they tend to go into government when they have done really well uh, and kind of have, get, you'll, you'll always come back when you've done really well. So you, you'd expect to come back. You'll also see people before profit who, you know, I don't, get the impression that any of them actually want to go into government would you know they they look more comfortable standing outside Leinster House than inside Leinster House and I'd say they'd be more they wouldn't be terribly comfortable in cabinet where you're suddenly being asked to compromise on things and you've you've kind of you've a difficult choice that you have to make and you I that's not the way I suspect their brains work um and so it will be difficult forming the next government. I mean, we could see that in, I think it was 70 days in 2016 it took to form a government. It was 140 days in 2020. And it could be something similar again if there isn't a kind of a, a clearer option and uh, that that will, will have to happen. I suspect there will be a clear option. I think that'll probably be Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil. If there is right-wing discontent with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, do you think there's room to run for an upstart party, much like the Progressive Democrats in years gone by? And how would a party like that avoid adding to the balkanization? Well, I don't think it it can avoid adding to that problem. But I suppose if you're a new party, you don't really care. That's not your problem to some extent. Um, I suspect there probably clearly is a, a conservative party that people would kind of vote for. I mean, again, you know, politics is on two dimensions rather than one. So it's not kind of left and right. There's, you know, there's the kind of social liberal and social conservative. And I suspect a lot of people in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael who are kind of socially conservative feel sort of let down by the government, that the government hasn't kind of put a break on what might be seen as a kind of an agenda that is is driven by NGOs. Um so a new party probably could happen. It's very hard to set up a new party and it's you'll usually do only do it if you have a couple of people who are relatively big names, like the PDs was kind of able to do it because, it, you know, it had five or six TDs coming from Fianna Fáil who were, who were big vote getters in their own areas. And so at least it, it had that to, to kind of to bring it along. It also had a very favourable media because, you know, the people who had supported uh, Fine Gael under, under Gard Fitzgerald were disappointed with the way Fine Gael had government, governed. Uh, they were still distrustful of Hohi. And so 
the PDs more or less had a fair wind behind them from the media. Public opinion was kind of behind them. And so it was relatively easy. I don't, I think because you have this big alternative with Sinn Féin, uh, which itself is a relatively conservative party, you know, it, it's not radical in the, you know, it, it was very slow to move on things like abortion. It only moved when it had to move because it realised, you know, public opinion had already moved. But it's very slow. It moves very slowly. And so, on, I mean, on issues like climate change, it's not a radical political party. It's it's quite a conservative party. And I think, I mean, to go back to what we were talking about at the very at the very start, uh, it's probably that's why I think it's it's kind of like Fianna Fáil in the thirties. It you know it promises radicalism, but I suspect its its instincts are quite conservative, and so you know I think a fair number of people will probably feel fairly comfortable voting for Sinn Fein, not thinking that it's it's a terribly radical party. And then there is probably I mean it, Sinn Fein's difficulty, of course, is that it's got another crowd voting for them who are kind of young radical left wing uh, who probably will will balk at the idea that Sinn Féin might might behave like a conservative political party or that it might even consider going into government with Fianna Fáil. Could you maybe give an introduction as to how the progressive democrats came about because it seems that more and more people more and more young people aren't familiar with the progressive Democrats and almost view them as the precursor to the social Democrats. All right. Well, you know, I suppose they were both fashionable in their day. So, you know, so maybe that's why they might be be similar. Uh, so, well, my father, Des O'Malley, was, was expelled from Fianna Fáil in, what was it, I think, 84 or 80, early 85. Uh, but, I mean, having long had a kind of a, a a difficulty with the Fianna Fáil leadership in uh, under Charles Hawhey and so he had tried and failed pre- pretty miserably uh, to remove Hawhey from the leadership of Fianna Fáil and in order to put himself in Hawhey got rid of him expelled him from Fianna Fáil over a speech that he made in the door which was you know now kind of seems almost quaint about liberalizing the uh, uh, the access to contraceptives. Uh, he didn't, in fact, he didn't vote in favour of the bill. He just abstained from the bill, but he was expelled from the party. Others, such as Mary Harney, Michael McDool, who had been in Fine Gael, was, was very unhappy with Fine Gael in government, approached him, put him under a bit of pressure uh, to to set up a new party. He was probably very reluctant he had been, you know, 15 years at the front line of politics. He had kind of had fairly difficult time and he was still pretty young. And I think he was almost, you know, I know he was kind of considering just giving up politics and going, trying to go into get a job and a regular job and maybe make some money. Um, but he had a fairly serious car crash at that time and ended up sitting at home for three months. Uh, which I suspect meant that he was kind of ended up sort of just ruminating about what to do with his future. Uh, and Harney was kind of continually putting him under pressure and eventually he decided to to do it. And so set up in, I think it was, I think it was December 85, set up the Progressive Democrats. I mean, it was immediately incredibly popular. Uh, so I think it was kind of 24% in the polls, kind of, it was beating Fine Gael in the polls. But obviously, 
a new political party doesn't have any organisation. Now, it did have an organisation in Limerick. It, it pulled most of the Fianna Fáil organisation from Limerick there. It had an organisation in Galway because Bobby Malloy, a Fianna Fáil TD, went over and he pulled most of the Fianna Fáil organisation there as well. But outside those places, it didn't have much of an organisation. And so one of the difficulties in setting up any new political party is that you have to have an organisation. And again, one of the I mean, one of the advantages that you can see with Sinn Féin is that it very, very slowly built up an organisation. It's been, you know, it's it's probably still not there yet, judging by the difficulties that it has in candidate selection. But for the PDs, for instance, finding candidates was you know, was one of the kind of early challenges and because you a lot of people who were unknown were kind of joining the, the party and you had, I mean, it was, there was, it was a kind of a wave of excitement, mainly because people were unhappy with Fine Gael and Labour in government and Fianna Fáil was still under Hawhey and people, a lot of people distrusted Hawhey. And so there was this, as I said earlier, the kind of wave of support from the media, public opinion was behind them. Uh, and they had kind of these kind of monster meetings where you'd have kind of 10, 12,000 people would be coming along to a political meeting to hear them kind of speak about things. And that's probably unheard of now to have numbers like that. You know, they're really huge events. Sinn Féin, would they be comparable in their rallies? Yeah, but I don't, I mean, I've, I've, haven't seen anything as big you know the these were you know there were huge traffic jams getting to them there, there were kind of fairly kind of huge halls with, that were meant to take kind of five thousand people and they were being they were overflowing and you couldn't couldn't get in and so it was a bit like that you know i, I think there was i'm not sure that it was so much as my father, Des O'Malley, I think it was more that there was just so much disappointment out there because, you know, I think everybody had felt there was a promise from from Gareth Fitzgerald and he had let them down. And I mean, the economy was in in such bad shape at the time that they were people were just desperate for change. And so I think that was I mean, by the time they got to an election in 87, some of the, you know, you have to produce a manifesto where you actually say, you know, this is what we stand for. And for some people, it would have been, you know, the party would have been too right wing. When Gareth Fitzgerald, when my, when Des O'Malley was expelled from Fianna Fáil, Gareth Fitzgerald approached him and asked him, would he join Fine Gael and go into the cabinet? But I mean, I, subsequently, I'd interviewed Fitzgerald, not about that, but more more about his government. But he was he was kind of mentioned. I didn't realize how how right wing he was, uh, and so I mean, Gareth Fitzgerald, I suppose, was a social democrat, uh, and my father would have been more kind of liberal and economically liberal, uh, and so it would. And then you know, when it was clearly that it was a a right of centre party, then it you know some of the support went away, but it still did well in that eighty seven election. Got fourteen seats. I think it was about twelve percent of the, of the vote, um, and that was probably a significant turning point. In I mean, even though the the PDs no longer exist, it was probably a significant turning point in recent Irish history because in the aftermath. Fianna Fáil under Hawhey, you know, it introduced social partnership, but it also started to cut taxes in ways that had never happened before. 
And so the, the economy started, you know, the existence of the PDs might have steeled some of those uh, like Kohi who kind of realized actually there, there is, there are votes to be gained from promising to cut taxes and things uh, and to being, and, and also to, there are votes to be gained in promising to cut the size of the state or at least eliminate a, a lot of the waste in the state. And that's evident too from, at the same time, Margaret Thatcher in the UK, let's say Ronald Reagan in the States. Is that an unfair comparison to make between the progressive Democrats and those two? And would, it's almost a curse word now, would neoliberal be an accurate word to describe the party? Yeah, it's probably, I mean, I they, I mean, obviously the PDs were, were kind of influenced by what was happening in the US and the UK. And, you know, you could see in the US and the UK that the, those approaches, monetarist economics, for want of a better term, uh, had started to work and that the economies in those two countries had started to pick up. So they were certainly influenced by them. I don't think, I mean, there may have been one or two people in the PDs who were ideologues, but it wasn't that ideological a party. It was fairly, like most Irish parties, fairly pragmatic, uh, probably because of the size of the country. You know, you do get to know people from all sectors and sides of society. Uh, so I don't think it was as ideal. It certainly wasn't as ideological as, as Reagan or Thatcher. Uh, because you know nobody in there was that ideological they were just more reacting to what they saw as failure uh, and were willing to try you know to pick ideas that they could see from other places that were working uh, so you know i suppose you could argue that it was neoliberal if you know if neoliberal is neoliberalism is in favor of reducing the size of the state, privatizing some companies that you know patently weren't working and didn't really need to be in under in the state. So yeah, I mean, it, it's probably not inaccurate to to have called them neoliberal. How swollen was the Irish state at the time the PDs came about? Because I think small government or you know big government now is a different ballgame altogether to say the size of Aer Lingus, the size of Telecom Air, and in the eighties. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that it was swollen in in one sense. It just wasn't very efficient. Uh, so, I mean, I suppose there's a difference between the size of it and whether it was delivering things. So, I mean, it, un, it was more or less the same as every other country in that you had, your, you had uh, an airline that was owned by the state. You had a postal service owned by the state, which we still do. Uh, you had a telephone company that's owned and run by the state. Uh, and so in those senses, it wasn't excessively big. It was just that it was really badly run. A lot of them, you know, the telecom errand was incredibly poorly run. You know, you had you had to wait years you had to apply for a phone and you were waiting years for it. And it wasn't getting any better. Now, Albert Reynolds, uh, to be fair, when he became minister, he improved things in telecom errand. Uh, but or, or what had been posting telegraphs, but you know the state wasn't huge, but it was very inefficient. I mean, in many ways, you might say that some of the problem now is the same, in that you have you don't have a huge state, but you don't people complain that they're they're not getting value for money, and so you know we're pumping 
I think we've increased the size of the health system in terms of the amount of money that we're spending in three three times in the last 20 years. It's multiplied by three in the last 20 years, yet you don't have a, a health system that's even twice as good as it used to be. Uh, and so there, it, 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 the state in the 1980s was bloated. Uh, it was also probably... Another problem with it was because there was n- not much action in the private sector, anybody with any sort of talent uh, was probably either, well, one going abroad or else trying to work for the state. And so you were kind of keeping, because they were, the, you know, they were the only safe jobs that you could get. Uh, a lot of kind of good people ended up working in the state, but not necessarily radically transforming the, those the organizations that they worked in. They were more kind of looking after their own interests, naturally enough. Uh, and so you had a not terribly big state, but a very inefficient state. And so that was a lot of the problem. And then you had a very small private sector. I mean, there was there was almost nothing. There were very few successful Irish companies. And so, if, you know, if you can think about some of those one those Irish companies now that are kind of global, like Ryanair, uh, Smurfit, um, they are ones that were fairly... You know, either didn't exist or were kind of relatively small and then have, you know, managed to transform on the basis. And, you know, things like Kerry Group, uh, you can see, you know, these are companies that have grown where the state now was encouraging private enterprise, whereas I suppose it, well, it didn't discourage private enterprise. It wasn't a place that it wasn't actively, rather, it wasn't actively trying to discourage private enterprise but it wasn't a place that made it easy for private enterprise to to work. The PDs would probably be, to to their credit, a a fair bit of the economic growth that came in the subsequent years, probably down to their policies. And yet, as Ireland became more um, um, hospitable to private sector um, businesses, as the Irish economy grew, the Celtic Tiger came, the PDs reduced the number of seats. So how, why do you think it was that in spite of the, you know, their policies seemingly being delivered that they reduced in popularity? Uh, I, I think probably because a lot of their policies were being delivered, people didn't feel the need to support them anymore because, you know, you had Fianna Fáil were actively happy delivering pro-enterprise policies. They were reducing uh, taxation at the same time. Um, and so it was one of the reasons that, you know, you didn't feel the need to support the PDs because you got Fianna Fáil who were doing more or less the same thing. I think, I mean, while the PDs, yes, they certainly were influential in in terms of delivering policy. I mean, there were other things like social partnership that were equally important as well, which the PDs certainly didn't come up with and probably wouldn't have supported. But, well, they did support once they were in government because they could see that it was working which I suppose goes to the idea that, you know, they weren't ideologues in in any way. Uh, then the, I think the other problem for the PDs was after 2002, they weren't really necessary in that government. The You know, if the, if the PDs pulled out, that government wasn't going to fall. Whereas all the previous times, the PDs were, these were kind of minimum winning coalitions where if one of the parties pulled out, you know, the government collapses. After 2002, Harney, I suppose, was trying to reform the health system to some extent, but, you know, 
that might have been too big a job. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the agenda that the PDs had 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 was had already been delivered, and so it was also possible for the PDs to be ignored. And so you could see things like, you know, in the aftermath of 2004, Fianna Fáil had a bad local and European elections. Uh, Seamus Brennan, the Fianna Fáil Minister for Transport, had been trying to liberalise things like, I think, the taxi market and the bus market and things doing things like that. Um, but Ahern kind of got scared and he he put in somebody who was more likely to kind of do what uh, to kind of uh, do what the unions wanted to do or at least just kind of to put the brakes on the, those policies and i suppose in the past the pds could have threatened and said could have kind of kicked up a stink and said no we have to continue with these policies but at this stage whether i don't know whether they had kind of lost their way or realized that they were politically less powerful but they nothing happened uh, and you saw probably Ahern spending a huge amount of money and the PDs just kind of went along with it and so maybe that to some extent was they weren't doing anything to to stop it maybe they were also getting out you know if this was the second government so they were kind of coming up to 10 years in power for any government 10 years is probably as much as anybody can take. Uh, now for Fianna Fáil, that's okay because you've got a, it's a big party and a big political organization that's gonna be, gonna, gonna survive. But for a small party, that's always on the brink of extinction, extinction. Like you could see with, you know, the, the Greens in the aftermath of their government from 07 to, to 11, you know, you're, they were pretty much extinct. I mean, they lost all their seats. And so for the PDs, that was the same thing. And, you know, the Greens, I suppose, were true believers. You know, their problem in 11 was as great as an ex existential threat as ever. Whereas probably for a lot of the people in the PDs, you know, they kind of possibly felt, you know, well, we won our war, uh, so there's no need to try and keep going. And so they kind of, I think after two years after that, I think the 2007 election more or less annihilated the PDs. And then two years later, I think there was a kind of a general agreement to just give up. Pivoting now to a different topic, freedom of speech has been kind of a hot topic of late, particularly with the new um, hate speech laws, but also historically, you know, with widespread Catholic censorship with the outlawing or the suppression of Sinn Féin. So I guess my question is, has Ireland ever had freedom of speech? Did we transiently pass it? And what is the optimal amount in an Irish context? Uh, well, I mean, you'd, I suppose you, what you'd like is everybody has the freedom of speech, but people maybe exercise some caution when they are choosing to, to use that freedom of speech. So, I mean, I'd prefer if there were no laws whatsoever uh, circumscribing anybody's freedom of speech. Um, probably, I mean, in retrospect, it's it's hard to know. Well, it, it's easy to know in terms of the censorship of of books and things like that. I mean, it, this wasn't hardcore porn, hardcore porn that was being censored. These were kind of very mild references uh, to things that were were being censored. 
uh, by some of our kind of greatest writers. Then in section 31 in the 70s, um, it's hard to know whether that was right or wrong. I mean, you, there was an organisation that was basically a threat to the state. Uh, and so whether you want to allow them onto the airwaves. Now, I think when it went, or I think it was Michael D. Higgins removed it in uh, in the early 90, mid-90s. Uh, I think that was it was certainly the time to have gone by then because, you know, this was it was all part of a an overall settlement and towards towards uh, the, the peace process and towards the, the Good Friday Agreement. So those, you know, the Section 31, you could debate. I'm not sure whether it was necessary, whether it benefited Ireland or whether it was whether it was dangerous. Uh, I mean, it. My inclination is to think that it was a bad thing because, you know, people should be allowed to to speak in even if they are saying things that are abhorrent, like such as um, such as kind of defending, you know, terrorist atrocities. It was also kind of ridiculous because what you had, I can't remember whether it was in, well, it was certainly in the UK where you basically had somebody voicing over Jerry Adams. So you were looking at Jerry Adams and then you had some guy going, I think that's as well. And uh, you're, so you're just kind of looking at it and it was, it was kind of pointless, really. Um, I can't remember whether it was, did our, whether Ireland had, whether we had the same thing that they were being voiced over or not. But, you know, it was kind of laughable in, in a way. Uh, and so now, with the introduction of hate speech laws, I think it's kind of slightly dangerous that, you know, certain people with political views that were once very, very mainstream might be regarded as an anachronistic and conservative, but, you know, they're not, these are not dangerous people uh, and argue to say that they can't say certain things that they they want is surprising. It's more surprising that it's coming from Fine Gael because, I mean, I think the looking at what might be difficult to say, uh, like I mean, to kind of discuss things like uh, trans issues and stuff like that, it'll probably make it more difficult for anybody to have a debate. Most people don't really want to talk about trans issues because, you know, it's it's the equivalent of abortion in the 1980s. I remember t talking to a, a senior uh, left-wing politician uh, who just said he never wanted to see his name and the word abortion in the not in the same sentence, what not even on the same page of a, of a newspaper, because it just was was bad news for him. He had what were fairly liberal issues about abortion, but he just didn't want it because there was there was even though there was no law against freedom of speech there was effectively a lot of self-censorship I think there's probably a lot of self-censorship on the trans issues now because there is a sense that if you are in any way questioning or critical of the laws that were passed in I think it was 2014, 2015 uh, that you're, you're I mean it's easy just to shout transphobe at somebody and that probably has shut down a lot of what might be reasonable debate in the doll again? I know speaking to some TDs that they just kind of won't touch the issue, uh, and so putting this—I mean, they're all there's already self-censorship. Putting it in legislation, where you know where 
it's almost impossible to legislate because who is going to decide what whether this was a hate speech or not? It's going to be left up to judges. Are judges really the right people to make these decisions? Uh, you know, they they can't define things in the law because it's just very difficult. I mean, it's very difficult to legislate in these areas. So writing the law is leaving too much open to interpretation. And then that will be judges make make that ruling. And I would have just thought it'd be easier to allow people to say things if you are inciting violence or inciting hatred. You know, there are there are existing laws. Uh, I'm not sure that people are being uh, prosecuted with them. Um, I know maybe you could argue that that's because the laws have been badly drafted, but, you know, who knows whether this law is going to be badly drafted or it could be that, you know, the law isn't really necessary. It seems to me uh, something that has been demanded by, you know, certain groups, NGOs, you know, lobby groups. And I don't really see what the, I, I don't see that there's a huge problem out there that needs to be solved. And it's certainly not, if I were in government, it's certainly not something I'd waste political capital on. Last couple of questions now, quick ones. Um, what was your favorite interview from the Two Thrives documentary? Oh God, um, <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> it's the honest answer. Um, right. For example, I just I, John Bruton's one I thought was fascinating. That in not so few words, said, oh, I never had much time for Michael Collins. He was always more of a redundant, and, and you'd never have said that when he was in Fine Gael. Uh, well, he kind of would. He was. He never. I mean, I know people in. Morris Manning, for instance, had said about him that he's, you know, he he's not a real Finnegaler. He's not even a Cumannagaler. Uh, that he's more kind of Irish centre party would be his his background. And you know, he's. I mean, it it did show that one thing about Bruton is that he's uh, he's a different thinker. You know, he's not somebody who goes with the the mainstream. Um, and yeah, you 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 know. Not sure I'd share all his views, but he, at least he's thoughtful. He thinks about these things uh, in ways that most normal people don't. The odd slip of the tongue in an interview when he doesn't know he's being recorded. He's with Northern Ireland. Yeah, he's a has a tendency. He's probably a tendency to. I mean, he, one of the things that people say they like in politicians is that they're authentic. And John Bruton strikes me as as very authentic. And he's also somebody who's very honest. He kind of tells the truth, where maybe at times where you kind of kind of keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think was the most fascinating heave in Irish political history? Heave being the yeah. push against the. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, the for me, the fascinating ones were the ones I can remember. I like when you were kind of where you were kind of sitting in rooms trying to listen to things. So, I mean, I the the ones the anti hawhi heaves were fascinating insofar as how inept they all were and how badly organised they were, um, and so they they endlessly fascinate me because. I'm just looking at somebody like my old fellow who was meant to be, you know, an experienced politician. And I'm just kind of looking, how could you have got it so badly wrong? And like the timing of one of them, you know, was just after an election where Fianna Fáil looked like it was going to be going into government. And you were kind of thinking, why would you do it now? This is just not the time to do heaves. And, you know, they kind of fascinate me for how badly run they were. Mm -hmm. 
Last question. What topic do you think about every day? <laughs> so we, it's a big thing in social media that every lad thinks about the Roman Empire every day. So I, <laughs> You're not thinking about sex, no? <laughs> <laughs> well, apart from sex, um, probably housing. Um, I mean, and just the layout of our streets and our cities and how badly we've done it and how we... I don't. I still don't quite get how we're still allowing houses to be built, like three bedroom semi detached houses to be built on the edges of cities, and you know that should have been outlawed a long, long time ago. And you know, I, th- I think that you know you solve housing, you solve pretty much every issue. You know, if you, if you're if we're shorted, we've got a shortage of teachers. It's because housing is too expensive in Dublin. If there's a problem, you know, with anti-immigrant sentiment, it's probably because people are looking at housing and going, oh, look at those bastards, they're getting houses and we're not. Uh, and like, I think you can look at almost any any social problem and you get housing right and then you'll solve most of them. Mm-hmm. Bring back bungalow bliss. <laughs> well, no, that we have to get rid of. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Malley, for coming on to Bramcast. Thanks a lot. That was our conversation with Dr. Owen O'Malley. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast.